0: Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we speak with writer Helen Pluckrose about critical social justice ideology, what it is, and why it matters deeply and profoundly for civil society. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Our guest today is our first international guest, the first uh, person we we're speaking to from outside uh, the boundaries of the United States of America, In Helen Pluckrose, uh, writer, cultural commentator, and editor-in-chief of Aereo Magazine. Uh, and yes, Helen, you are going to be speaking to us from London, correct?
1: I am indeed, just outside East London, where it's as rainy as you'd expect.
0: Well, it's as sunny as you would expect in Phoenix, Arizona, Uh, so um, hopefully that makes you feel better and not not worse. Um, Aereo Magazine, uh, of which you are the editor-in-chief, is – I just want to uh, make sure people know what that is. It is a broadly liberal humanist digital magazine that focuses on current affairs, politics, culture, science, and art. You are also the founder of Counterweight, an organization that helps individuals resist the imposition of critical social justice on their workplaces, universities, and children's schools. And uh, you are the co-author with James Lindsay of the best-selling book, Cynical Theories. So thank you very much for joining us, Helen.
1: It's lovely to be here.
0: Um, I thought... Uh, we'll talk about um probably what you always talk about uh when you do these podcasts uh wokeness um critical uh social justice critical race theory um this uh sort of uh language uh the, this conceptual apparatus is um more and more present I think in everyone's worlds uh, where it used to be sort of distant from most people's worlds I would say but even even in the um. World of philanthropy and the nonprofit space. These are concepts and words, um, ideas that people are bumping up against a lot now. So I thought maybe we could start by. I mean, you're an expert in this. <laughs> you know it inside out. Maybe you could help us understand terminology to begin with. Like, what are we, what are we talking about? It seems sort of opaque to sort of regular people. Uh, you know, critical social justice, critical race theory. Um, what, what should people know? Can you kind of just kind of give us an introduction to the terminological world okay. that we are encountering now?
1: Yeah, so, so mostly what we're looking at with what we call critical social justice is an understanding of society as um, divided and stratified by power dynamics. Um, and um, so the systems of power and privilege called things like white supremacy, patriarchy you know, transphobia, ableism, and all the rest of it, and that these permeate everything. And uh, But most of us are um, blind to it. We just accept it as normal because this is the way we talk about things. It's all been constructed in the service of power by powerful groups in society who are understood to be wealthy, straight, white men. And uh, we need these critical theorists and activists to... um, Critically analyze our discourses, the way we're talking about things, the way we're thinking, our attitudes, our biases, and uh, point out these systems of power and privilege and make us see them. So, this is known as critical consciousness in Marxist thought. And then, as we've gone into the sort of um, postmodern approach with Foucault, when he looked at power and knowledge as um, being very much intertwined and then expressed through discourses, We've that's carried on, this, this critical consciousness idea. And now in um, African-American vernacular, English, woke, um, refers to the same thing, being able to see those systems of power and privilege.
0: Is it... Um... Okay, so before we get on to whether... How one uh, <laughs> well, we'll get onto how, how one talks to how one might be able to challenge uh, sort of that um, view of the world. A couple of just just laying the groundwork here. Um, you say the 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 view of um, critical social justice uh, ideology is that everything is constructed. Um, so the the point I suppose in part is there is no um, nothing that has been constructed in our cognitive or social worlds is has any has any necessary or true relationship to some sort of underlying reality. Is that correct? There's no... Uh,
1: it's a kind of. I'm, I'm going to complicate things now. So it isn't that the postmodernists and the theorists who derive from them say that there isn't a reality. They say that our decision to relate knowledge to reality, the correspondent um, theory of, of truth, which means it corresponds with reality, is a white male Western... Um, construct so we say that the earth um, orbits the sun because we understand knowledge as reality but we only privilege this over another culture that might say that the sun is a, a chariot being driven across the sky um, because we're, we're focusing on science and they focus on um, mythology and it's racist and imperialistic to think that science is better than the mythology
0: is there any standard by which then to uh, judge uh, whether one uh, narrative or discourse is superior to the other? Well, With respect to reality.
1: With, with respect to reality, um, we're, as we've got into the latest sort of stage since about 2010, you'll hear a lot of the theorists speak in terms of objective truth. So you'll hear people like Robin DiAngelo saying... Everybody who is raised in a white culture is racist. It's absolutely impossible not to be racist. Now, that's an objective claim. So we're seeing um, it coming back in at least that sense to an objective um, truth claim. But you, you can't argue with it. But the idea is that that white people have a certain knowledge and black people have a different knowledge and then trans people have another knowledge again. And if you have a number of these intersecting marginalised identities, you can see more of these uh, oppressive power systems than people who have fewer marginalised identities. That's why
0: on cynical... Sorry, go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yeah, a a kaleidoscopic consciousness, as somebody called it, I can't remember who now, but that's why we have on cynical theories the picture of the glasses with the different colour lenses in it, um, to to sort of show how this standpoint epistemology works. If you are a black um trans lesbian woman, you will see much much more of society than a straight white man.
0: Um, hence it would seem then the proliferation of of identities that would claim to have a, a you know a, their own color in the lens, right? Because uh, the more more identities that you could claim for yourself, um. Uh, that are non-traditional identities anyway, the further you can see.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, you're um, supposed to have a particular competence. Of course, this doesn't stand up at all. As soon as you start looking at, at, say, black intellectuals, you can't help but notice that Ibram X. Kendi and Thomas Sowell exist. So, this idea that there is a particular way of thinking related to your sex or your race is um, is simplistic and it doesn't really help anything.
0: Well, it's certainly not. It's not empirically true. But I I, I presume that the critical social justice proponent would say that is because certain um, uh, African Americans, certain women, whatever, uh, have um, uh, they haven't been they have a false consciousness, right? To use a Marxist. Um, Uh, term they they they, they've unfortunately been blinded themselves by the you know the patriarchal sort of uh, narrative uh and it's our job to help them come out of that
1: yeah so that that's the the charitable thing if you if you're a, a white person who who doesn't believe that absolutely everything is underlain by white supremacy you'll be trying to protect your own privilege if you are yeah. a black person who doesn't think everything is underlain by white supremacy you are either um blinded into this um discourse and you're you've internalized racism or you're trying to please white people to secure an advantage for yourself at the expense of other members of your race and then it's um, apparently okay to use racial epithets
0: right interesting well let's come back to the uh, the uh, one glaring um, uh, problem or, or challenge with all of this, which it would be it's sort of uh, uh, evident unfalsifiability. Uh, we're, we're, I want to come back to that. But um, I want to you, you come back to something you said, and you've, you've written about this, too. I think it's very interesting. And I think, um, again, a lot of people who don't keep up with this stuff on a day-by-day basis, um, their own terminology hasn't caught up with it yet. And you say, about in 2010, maybe 10 or so years ago, the sort of all the way down relativism that used to characterize um, postmodern discourse um, started to fade away or kind of go away. And now and now there is a sort of belief, an objective truth. Can you talk about that? Do I have that right?
1: Yeah. So the original postmodernists, they were radically skeptical. They didn't see Um, any possibility of obtaining truth. So this is um, Jean-Francois Lyotard, Michel Foucault, particularly Jacques Derrida. So they really just wanted to deconstruct everything. Uh, but they burnt themselves out by about the mid 80s. Then in, in 1989, something happened and there was a sudden flood of writing from a new wave of theorists, including people like Judith Butler and um, Kimberly Crenshaw in critical race theory and Mary Poovey in feminism, um, who said, OK, so these postmodern ideas of everything being socially constructed in the service of power are good and we want to keep them but we have to have some objective truth or we can't say that anybody is consistently oppressed and then we can't do anything about it. So they decided that what uh, is objectively what is that object- true is the right. social systems of oppression. So the, the, best, the best essay for this is Kimberly Crenshaw's Ma- Mapping the Margins. She said just because race and sex are social constructs doesn't mean that there aren't um, real consequences in life, power clusters around certain groups, and this is an objective fact. So there's, we saw then a return to some acceptance of objective reality, but it was still very tentative. But over the following sort of 30 years, it's got really um much more confident and and stronger in it in its own belief that um you know that there really is no such thing as biological sex um female penises uh exist that um you know ev- everybody must every white person must be racist every man must have sexist ideas it's um this is the objective truth now it's it's come it's become its own meta narrative. So it started off as as being skeptical of these grand narratives that explained everything, and then it became a grand narrative that explains everything.
0: It, I was thinking about this. Um, e, e, there's a there's sort of there's this liberationist quality to this um, ideology. It's it's that's its its whole point is to liberate. Uh, uh, people from uh, the prison of a, a discourse that is uh, oppressive, and so on. Um, yeah, there's there's an analog that is not though so ideological, and that would be sort of the least the story we have told, long told about the liberal arts and what liberal arts education is supposed to affect, which is to make you help you see by by encountering the most insightful minds and writers um in history, and they're sort of building on one another's one another's insight uh, to help to free us from uh, the sort of petty provincialisms of the discourses, you might even say, uh, that are, that we're so used to uh, swimming in the water that we're in so that we can maybe rise above them and view them critically. Um, what is, uh, uh, why uh, that seems to be like the sort of, <laughs> that's a liberationist narrative in and of itself. Why is that um, not um, considered acceptable or, um, uh, effective by the critical social justice um advocates.
1: Well what you're you're referencing there um is a sort of modernist approach where there is um a lot of sort of different truths to be discovered but there's a universal um qualities of of hum- humanity underlying it and that the postmodernists were very much opposed to this. There's also that element of the marketplace of ideas where people bring together um, different knowledge,s different ideas. They argue them out. They test them against each other, and so knowledge advances and, and moral progress is made. This is the the liberal idea, and I, I'm aware because I'm speaking to an American audience. I should say when I use the term liberal, I am not referring to the left. I am referring to um liberal secular democracies that development of modernity which focused on freedom the individual uh, you know plurality of of beliefs marketplace of ideas so the idea of the the social justice um people um is very very critical of liberalism they think it's too complacent They think its focus on the individual, on on meritocracy and on the marketplace of ideas is really just a way for straight white men to keep imposing their ideas and for everybody else to keep agreeing with them. They don't have the confidence that that liberals have in the power of argument to change minds because they see things in this this terms of discourses.
0: So um, that's right, but it it certainly... um... Is the am i correct uh in saying that th- they seem to insulate themselves in a bubble of unfalsifiability there's no there's nothing certainly that a straight white man uh, could say or any uh, may an, an increasing number of categories as you have pointed out in your writing could say that would um that they even need to listen to right i mean we uh, you can be ignored immediately in fact they don't need to listen to anybody even a, a, a black woman uh, uh you know a, a, a gay you know Man who disagrees uh, uh, with them is, for all the reasons you've already pointed out, operating. You know they've internalized racism or whatever it might be. Um, what? what, How do you? How does one communicate then? (laughs) How can there be any kind of uh, conversation or dialogue with someone who embraces critical social justice ideology?
1: Well, if somebody is really deeply embedded within it, there, there simply isn't any way. If you read Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, for example, she's anticipated every objection and she's closed it down. Her argument um, is that anybody who disagrees with her stays quiet or goes away is um, suffering from white fragility, where they just simply cannot bear being f- confronted with the truth of their own racism. So the only way not to be fragile is to stay put and agree with her. So th- this is, is utterly um, unfortifiable. If you are trying to talk to Robin DiAngelo, you wouldn't get through to her, and she will not, in fact, um, debate. And this we see with a lot of the, the real sort of... Um, Uh, leaders of the movement, but I think this is a very, very small number. I like to compare it to, say, the church. So we have the theologians, and that's a small group of people who are really um, into the uh, theology, the ideas, they're totally embedded in it. Then you have the priests, who have a more accessible version of it, and then you have the laity who have beliefs but um, sort of apply them quite individualistically. So quite often when I'm speaking to somebody who is expressing social justice style ideas, there is a way for me to find common ground with them. They haven't entirely bought into um, the, the whole narrative. They may not even know the theorists that they're actually referencing. So you can quite often, if you start a conversation, so with, with me being um, a liberal and um, sharing the goal of racial, gender and LGBT equality, I, if I can start by saying to them, yes, there have been horrible systems of, of unjust power and there's still an aftermath of that, I'm, I agree with you, we need to keep focusing on this, then we can perhaps discuss the difference in our ideas. And somebody will accept that perhaps reason can work sometimes, perhaps argument is worthwhile. But more often with the the activists and the most zealous um, people, they they will just call me a a fascist or a white supremacist. And uh, if we're on social media, which we usually are, because I don't meet these people um, very often in real life, Um, (laughs) I I get blocked. So conversation is difficult.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, so but what you're saying, the broader principle here is that possibility of dialogue, conversation um, is only possible insofar as critical social justice ideology is incompletely uh, absorbed by by those who say they adhere to it.
1: Yeah, quite often it's a mistake to follow them down that rabbit hole in the first place. If someone were to say to you, I can't see you, so I don't know what race you are, I'm going to assume you're you're white. If someone were to say to you, uh, how can you, a white straight man, say, uh, have any opinion on this, you should not then try to explain why you are able to have opinions, but simply say... I don't share your premise that I have to have a certain race or sex in order to have an opinion on this issue.
0: Very good, uh, Helen Pluckrose. We will be right back. We'll talk about how Helen got interested in all this. Um, go a little bit deeper in some of the problems or challenges posed by a critical social justice ideology, and maybe even talk about some potential solutions. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. We are here with Eric Strife, my esteemed colleague. Uh, Eric uh, is a managing director at American Philanthropic and runs our direct response shop. How are you doing, Eric?
2: Great. How are you today?
0: All right, Eric. You are actually an expert, unlike me and uh, perhaps some of the other people that I talk to from time to time. You you teach marketing. Uh, you have run big uh, marketing uh, programs uh, for nonprofit organizations. Um, so you really know what you're talking about. I'm just going to set the table for everybody here. Um, and I want to ask you about digital marketing, uh, for nonprofit organizations. Uh, it's, it's a extremely cluttered landscape. It seems to me, especially, um, uh, with the pandemic, which has only made it, made it worse. Um, so what do you, do you have like just a few tips? Um, maybe things people aren't necessarily thinking about or don't think about enough.
2: Uh, Yeah. You shoot them shoot to me, man. What do you, what do you got? Yeah, well, so first of all, it is very complex, to your point. It's a complex, but it's also very uncomplex. So sometimes we overcome and complexify it to a certain degree. But I think what I've noticed uh, over the years, in particular, as social media and digital fundraising and marketing have taken hold is that most organizations really need to take a much deeper look uh, at digital channels, not just email outreach, use of their website and landing pages. And their donation pages, which all should be really tweaked and always looked at, uh, you know, every month or two or three to really make sure you're maximizing it. I think perhaps more importantly, this day and age, um, nonprofits in particular need to be looking at what's happening on social media. It's an area that many nonprofits haven't embraced to the degree that uh, for-profit organizations are with great success, and I don't mean just having an Instagram page, a Facebook page, and a Twitter page, and posting every you know couple of times here and there with kind of meaning, meaningless content. Um, you know, I mean, really like leaning into this and realizing, yes, there's going to be a fundraising component uh, down the road, but it's really more about helping support your brand and support, you know, who you are, uh, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so you're telling your story on social media rather than hitting people up to you.
2: Exactly. So telling your story, who you are, being vulnerable, being authentic, uh, and just kind of letting your hair down, as they say, uh, with who you are and what you're about. And so many organizations fall short of that, right? And when they execute uh, social media, they think tactically. They think, OK, let's get in, let's Yeah, we need to do post more on Instagram or we need to do more on Facebook and so forth. And they don't really or we need to do more on emails or whatever it might be. And Yeah, perhaps they need to do tactically. They need to do more. But it, you need to step back and just determine what you're trying to accomplish, right? And what are your intended outcomes? What am I trying to do on social media? Uh, and and some of it will certainly be donations, but many much of it will is building that brand and you know telling your story in a very human way. So, um, what's the goal? Are you trying to get people to
0: feel like they're on the inside, like they really know you, like they're part of your community no, or something? Like, yeah, how would you how would you articulate that?
2: I think that the key is for the organization to. Um Realize that social media is similar to being at your friend's house for dinner and letting your hair down and being who you are. so being authentic and and that's very difficult, especially for a very buttoned up organization that's maybe conservative and very uh, you know it has a kind of a you know certain kind of image uh, but you need to find your why like Simon Sinek says and discover you know discovering the why and your purpose and being you need to discover that and you need to share that. And do that, and and I think that that may sound too lofty to a certain degree, but it's it's how social media is being uh, leveraged for organizations um, in a very very uh, uh, you know impactful way to be able to do that, Um, and it means you know there's three things that we typically try to do through digital marketing, means particularly social media, entertaining, educating, or informing. Um, and sharing and kind of thinking it through from a strategy and objective level. Uh, yeah, I, can inter- I could do maybe two or three of those even. I could entertain, but I can educate uh, as well. I might be able to inform about what we do and uh, share that, but I can also make it fun and entertaining. Maybe it's the person's personality or maybe it's the content we're sharing and things like that so that you're engaging and involving people, not just pushing out content. I don't know if that makes sense, but the idea of want exactly. to move from pushing out content to kind of entertaining, educating, and informing, um, and then finding a, a kind of a cadence for those things.
0: Yeah, it, it, the verbs make all the difference. Seems to me like pushing out content doesn't seem like you're necessarily thinking about the end user as much as as when you use verbs like uh, educate and entertain, inform. You know, it's not just filling up a bucket, but you're, you're exactly there's some, there's some reason for what you're doing.
2: Yeah. So as an example, like um, TikTok, which is there's just you know it's a it's a wasteland on one level, and there's a lot of uh, garbage on there, but it's 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 actually uh, totally transforming social media right now. How people are going to communicate, and I think there's a huge runway right now for even nonprofits to start to see how they could reach people, and particularly the younger audience. When I was talking about the younger audience, hey, get on TikTok and share your story in a very human, very authentic way um that is a collaborating engaging and involving people you can entertain you can educate and you can inform in incredible ways on tiktok it's a very powerful medium right now that we're going to see a lot more of
0: eric you're the first person to mention tiktok on this podcast uh gold star for you uh maybe we'll have to have you back to tell us more about that but hey thanks Good for your time you. today.
2: thank Appreciate you it. take care too
0: We are back uh, with Helen Pluckrose, co-author of Cynical Theories and editor-in-chief of Aereo Magazine. Um, Helen, how did you get interested in this whole thing? Uh, I I believe you were trained as a mathematician, right? Usually mathematicians are not, uh, you know, in the... Leading cultural commentators uh, category.
1: What, <laughs> no, how did this happen? yeah, I, you're thinking <laughs> of my co-author. There, he's a mathematician. Oh, I um, I'm I'm of the humanities. I studied uh, late medieval and early modern women's religious writing, so okay. I was um, deeply immersed in literary theory um, for a, a very long time, and this um, obviously covers post-colonial theory and queer theory. Then um I, I read a lot of the original postmodernists at undergraduate and postgraduate, and I'm interested in ideologies and discourses generally because I focused on how women used um, Christian narratives in order to gain authority and autonomy for themselves in societies in which they didn't have a lot. so I, I've always been interested in, um in ideology, but I was finding it very difficult. I intended to be a feminist historian, essentially. But I found it very difficult to do the, any work that I could be proud of because I was expected to constantly use these social constructivist theories. And I, I you know, culture exists. I am primarily interested in culture as somebody who looks at literature and, um, and culture and society But I do think biological realities exist as well. So I found it very difficult trying to deal with the feminist world in which we cannot um, accept that any differences, psychological, cognitive or behavioral, actually exist um, biologically between men and women. And we have to always read everything through current feminist theory, which is this is anachronism. You you cannot study the 14th century via 21st century intersectional feminism <laughs> and expect yeah. it to make much sense. So I got quite frustrated during my studies. In the same time, I was also being a liberal feminist and I was finding my fellow liberal feminists were becoming less and less liberal. And um, I, I held out for quite a long time trying to... Um, talk to, fem- to to feminists to keep the liberal feminists liberal and in the end i think it was 2016 i, I wrote my my piece that that um, sort of got brought attention to me in the first place which is why i no longer identify as a feminist because it, it was just wasn't possible any longer to to address issues as they they really were we were we were deep deep in postmodernism and cultural relativism and it and it was It was profoundly unhelpful.
0: (laughs) Did it make you unhappy?
1: Uh, Yes, yes. I mean, I started off, I think, the the combination, I started off writing and arguing in the new atheist space. So I have um, always been very critical of religion um, because of the illiberal and irrational elements of it and the lack of evidence-based epistemology. So when these postmodern ideas arose, I'm seeing the same kind of problem. There's, there's not much um, confidence in, in evidence, in science, in reason. Um, liberalism is also a victim of critical social justice. So all three of us, in fact, P- Peter Boghossian, James Lindsay and I, we all started off in the new atheist mo- movement and we moved into this ideology because it just works in such a, a similar way psychologically
0: uh you, one it seems like your thinking has evolved a little bit i think you've written about this where um just not long ago you thought that you know, critical social justice would would probably never gain too much of a foothold socio politically before it self destructed um but but you've you've rethought that a little bit now am i right about that
1: yes yeah so at the beginning of last year i think it was i was still arguing that it would have to ultimately self Uh, destruct because it's so contradictory because it keeps splintering into factions but what we've seen in the last couple of years and really escalating in the last six months is the shearing away of certain marginalized groups so we saw for example women are no longer really seen as a marginalized group by social justice so we get the the Karen meme and the um, the white women tears Gay men have not been um, consistently intersectional, so they are now largely to be regarded as privileged. Lesbians are to be suspected automatically of um, being trans-exclusionary, so they're always suspicious. We've ended up with two main ideologies, um, and that's the the trans-activism and the critical race theory. And I think because we have narrowed to this extent, when I said before this can't become totalitarian because it's too fragmented, I can now see a way that it could become totalitarian. I think that we are going to see um, the the race issue um, come out on top and um, overcome the, the trans issue, particularly in the US. Over here... Um, in the u k we've got a really strong cadre of um gender critical feminists uh, keeping trans issues current but I, I think in in america if you're going to go totalitarian with social justice it's going to be on the the subject of race and i i can i can see the possibility of that happening i'm i'm much more worried for america than I am for the u k at the moment
0: it's interesting could you? Uh, I'll, I'll read a sentence from you and then you can elaborate on that thought a little bit more. People quote, people who anticipate that CSJ could evolve into something akin to a Maoist revolution complete with struggle sessions are not conjuring this possibility out of nowhere. That's a remarkable statement that goes on to what you were just saying. Can you elaborate more on why you are so concerned about America and and what you think might what you fear might happen?
1: I can see the ideological zeal, the demands for purity. Um, that that have been intensifying. Now, um, Brett Weinstein is my friend. He and Heather, they we have spoken at length about the way this took over in Evergreen College. And within a closed system, it just um, erupted, it exploded, it poisoned everything. It became really dangerous. If you've seen some of the videos of it, there was a really kind of tribal um mob atmosphere happening there. And I think we, we saw this as well. It popped up in of all places, the knitting community. And yeah. um in young Leveling, right? yeah, and in young yeah. adult books. So we've seen these small eruptions of it in closed systems. Then I think after the death of George Floyd at the knee of um the white police officer there, that was when we saw the, the mass explosion, and I, I don't think it's coincidence that this happened at a time when people were very anxious about a pandemic, um, something they couldn't fight, and then something happened that gave them something to fight. I, As I said, I, I studied the late medieval period, so I know during the Black Death, for example, this was when people suddenly decided it's time to persecute the Jews. It's, um, you know, this is, this is what happens when people are afraid of natural things, then the their enemies, their perception of their enemies, um, will suddenly intensify as well. So I think this was a disaster waiting to happen in the U.S. and I think it, it happened. I think that you're seeing a genuine attempted cultural revolution. I don't think it can win in the long term, but I'm I am quite worried that um, there could be a considerable violence and destruction before um, you reestablish a, a liberal um, order again.
0: It seems yeah. One one fear I have, uh, even if there are not um, uh, large violent spasms um, of um, activity. Uh, it certainly, it's hard to see the further penetration of of social justice ideology um, into uh, culture as as uh, helpful for a community. So, to get, come back to sort of one of the points of this podcast, um, uh, strengthening communities, building community. Um, certainly, it seems to me that the more you know wokeness penetrates civil society, the less likely people are to associate with one another. Uh, certainly with people they don't already know or suspect agree with them because out of a fear of saying the wrong thing you know being outed or you know having to clam up and watch you say that's no fun um am i wrong about that dynamic (laughs) you know being pretty corrosive
1: yeah i i think that's uh, the call-out culture the cancel culture that um that we're apparently not to believe in even though i'm getting messages hundreds of them a day from average people who are in danger of losing their job or. Being failed, or or being fired, or just terrified of um, a social lashback on social media because they have misspoken in some way. Uh, there's a there's a real zealotry going on here, and and you know sometimes you can see with seen before with with mobs when they have become out of control. When um, an Islamist mob stomped a woman who said that they that um, they thought that she'd. Burnt the Quran or something. This is this kind of collective madness that takes over. We saw it, yes, in in Maoist revolutions. I'm not claiming that, um, you know, we are right back in um, the sort of struggle sessions at, at this moment, but that mentality is something that is in humans. We are territorial tribal apes. And I think that social justice brings out the worst in us, while liberal humanism. Um, which gets us to empathise with the widest possible group to believe that we can empathise across um, divides of sex, of race, of nation, Uh, brings out the best in us. And I think we see see that over the last couple of hundred years as we have got rid of things like slavery, patriarchy, colonialism. And as we've developed secular liberal democracies, particularly between the 60s and the 80s, we've seen what liberalism um in its in its real sense in its individual and universal sense can actually do now social justice is the opposite of this it's trying to take us back to defining people and evaluating them by their race their gender their sexuality it's doing it in reverse to the ways the traditional racists um did it but it's going to cause the same Problems, because people are going to react badly to things. If you tell somebody that they are bad because they are white, our our reciprocity is likely to make us then increase um, our own hostility to other groups. We need to fight against this in-group, out-group tendency that we have, and social justice is doing the opposite.
0: Well, certainly, one of the ways we fight against in-group/out-group tendencies, uh, at least um, historically, is by uh, living amongst people who are not all exactly like us. <laughs> we live, we live in, talk to, um, uh, live among and talk to people who have different views. Um, a lot certainly, this has happened as you pointed out more and more in in, in the context of modernity. Yeah, um, and that also is being um, one of the, one of the things that's reinforcing. It seems to me this. Um, the strength of uh this uh the social justice uh ideology dynamic that's generated is the fact that we have sorted ourselves more than ever, certainly in America. I assume this is also the case in Britain, uh, by um uh not just educational st- uh um achievement, socioeconomic status, but also by ideology or point of view. Um, and then of course online there's almost a perfect sort going on, which is only being made even more extreme by Um, the sorts of things you were just talking about, cancelling, deplatforming, et cetera. So um, we seem to be going exactly the opposite way of what we would want to do if we wanted to actually um, sort of decrease the temperature on all this.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is what we have the tendency to regress to unless we really keep reinforcing liberalism and rationalism because this is what we have always done. This is how we work, I think, humans in a state of of nature. We work as tribal and territorial. The idea that they call um, weird societies, Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, because we are weird. This hasn't really happened before. This idea that I can believe something different to you um, about, say, God or the king and neither of us have to fight about it or kill each other, that's, that's quite a new development and it's, it takes upholding. The critical social justice people, they tend to believe themselves to be new and edgy and radical and, in fact, they are really regressive. What's new is, is liberal humanism, secular democracy. You know, America, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the new creation. That's the thing that needs to be preserved.
0: I don't know that it's new. I mean, I, I appreciate your emphasizing sort of the accomplishments of liberalism, but I mean, there are pre liberal virtues too that are lost um, in uh, in all of this. I'm just thinking of like charity, humility, uh, you know, classical uh, and Judeo Christian virtues alike that also seem to be swept away here by this. There certainly seems to be no room for charity uh, or humility in, in, in critical social justice.
1: No, there's um, a lot of people have pointed out when um, we've sort of compared it to religion that there isn't really a forgiveness um, system or a, a, I was speaking to a pastor um, recently and, and she used the word grace a lot, that there's a lack of grace. And this, I think she meant um, you know, kindness and, and empathy and, and charity for others. So that, that doesn't happen when you're swept up in um a sort of a, a washer of zealotry and that that's whether it's it's religious ideology or secular ideology uh well let's talk about um okay
0: <laughs> if one is uh um, persuaded that uh um, this is not a good thing critical social justice ideology is uh um poisonous and destructive um, I mean, what can you do? I mean, you already pointed out that there's a a, cost to be paid already, oftentimes, at people's workplaces um, or uh, socially, at least on social media, if we can count that as socially. Uh, What... um, Oh, what can we do? Uh, you know, what, what's the way forward here?
1: Okay, well, well, this is where I plug my new organization, Counterweight. Please do. <laughs> and, Please do. <laughs> and what we, we are operating a casework system, So people will come to us. They're having a particular problem at work or university or their children's school. Um, we assign them a caseworker if they need immediate um, help. We attack, connect them with resources, with a group of people in their own sphere perhaps with legal advice, um, perhaps with a theoretical advisor, which is me. Um, We help Mm. them to write letters, um, we provide um, templates, and we sort of create a customized um, plan for them to address whatever issue it is that they're addressing. And we're having Mm. a lot of success with this. And this is Really? We're, yeah, we're operating kind of behind the scenes. So about 60 mm-hmm. to 70% of our users are American. So we're an, an international um, okay. group, although um, 60% of the cases we have, have done have been in the UK because I think we've had more press coverage over there at the moment. But um, yeah, no, we, we have had success. I, I was delighted a couple of weeks ago with somebody who worked for a major, major humanitarian um, charity told me that she had persuaded branches in six countries not to divert funds to unconscious bias training and instead spend it on medicine, food, and clean water for people that they're supposed to to help. We heard um, yeah, from what,
0: radical idea itself.
1: Yep, one of our members managed to get the compulsory um, uh, unconscious bias training made um, voluntary. Uh, We've had we've had people managing to, you know, it's often it's a long, slow progress. It's not it's not so often that someone will say this is a problem and their employer will say, oh, yes, so it is. Thanks for pointing that out. You know, it can take weeks, it can take months, but we are helping people to keep um, their organization open to viewpoint diversity. And it isn't only employees employers come to us um quite a lot as well they want us to help them develop um a prince principled policies against racism that are non-woke they want to consult with us about um, alternative um forms of anti-racist training so we're helping um them to put in place um you know sort of principled opposition to bigotry in the workplace, which doesn't involve believing in any invisible systems of power or that people who disagree with you are evil so we we are quite hopeful and um by, by, by connecting people with each other as well, we're creating a groundswell
0: it's really uh it's very encouraging to hear it's not um it, what's very interesting about it is this case by case or case worker um strategy you're employing where you're not just sort of trying to oppose ideology with ideology, but are trying to actually work, um, uh, you know, on the ground at a, a very individual level to help people. Yeah,
1: I mean, in some, particular situations. Some, some people that work from the top down with the big systems, we work from the bottom yeah. up. So most of our people, we're not particularly focused on academics or on CEOs or on really influential people. We're focused on the average people who may not have Mm -hmm. the necessary background to know how to research, write and defend arguments against critical social justice. And they may not have a lot of power or platform, but we work upwards from there. And we have so many organizations that have formed now around social work, around charities, psychology. People are really supporting each other.
0: That is really uh, interesting to hear. Could you? Um, I don't know if it's possible to generalize or not, but uh, perhaps talk a little bit about what's most successful. You know uh, what what tends to work? Are you, is it is it a lawyer? Is it a letter from a lawyer? Is it a just a a um, a, 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 a generous conversation with uh, um, an employer or or board or like what? What are you finding actually? Is it just pointing out, like, here's what's evil about this, and and we you know we can go another way, and and there's actually a lot of common sense still out there, and people are like, oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, what's working?
1: Uh, <laughs> diplomacy, um, mostly. I mean, what where we I have to admit where we've had most success with um, getting organizations to make their diversity training voluntary or making it more inclusive of a wider range of viewpoints is when the member. Of counterweight, who has challenged it, has not been white. So obviously, this this makes um, a big difference. One one of our members is a black engineer, and he's um, he's challenged his um, company quite successfully. We hope he, there may still be disciplinary action, but we're we're keeping our eye on it. But mostly, it involves not sort of steaming in there and saying you're using some evil ideology, you're trying to brainwash people, and you're terrible but by saying this is not compatible with the worldviews of most of the people in the world. Because if you believe in social constructivism, you don't believe in free will. Now, liberals believe in free will. Conservatives believe in free will. So do Marxists, so do Christians, Jews, Muslims, (laughs) Sikhs and Hindus. This is incompatible with uh, nearly every other belief system. So, if we get people to go in there and point out that this um, social justice ideology really is an American-centric uh, Western creation which doesn't um, go very well with any other worldview, and that we need to keep them more I- inclusive, that is what has the most success, because most employers aren't actually um, you know, committed to to woke ideology themselves. they're trying to tick a box of of having covered this if you can point out to them a more inclusive way to do this you can include conservatives and um you get religious believers and um, liberals as well um everybody can oppose racism from their own ethical framework that's what tends to uh work they that makes them broaden out their horizons uh, a little bit more wonderful I, so i'll I'll just
0: end with this question for you helen um uh, beyond what you've just told us about, maybe beyond what Counterweight is doing, and necessarily, how can a how can a, a charity, a school, uh, maybe a philanthropic foundation, even any any workplace protect itself from being overtaken or held hostage by um, social justice ideology?
1: I think as a culture, we just need to get more confident with um, expressing liberal values. So if you're you're an organization or you're an employee. Try to be more confident with saying, I don't believe what you believe. I oppose um, all of these racism or sexism, but I don't believe what you believe. And if we can get more people confident to say that, also talk to other people in your organization, sound them out carefully. You will find that there are more people who are also worrying about it and keeping quiet than you realize.
0: Very good. Helen Pluckrose, co-author of Cynical Theories, editor-in-chief of AereO Magazine. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: It's been great talking to you.
0: Appreciate your time. Take care.